This morning, we're going to be looking at James. Surprise, surprise. Now, I, again, we, I say this time, I think this is my fourth message in James. The very first time, I, it, I wasn't even planning on it. We just I found myself in James 1. I've been reading through there, and we talked about um, perseverance through trials. And I made, I wasn't even planning on it, I just made this side comment that I think I'm just going to go preach through James expositorily and over the next 10 years. And it was totally a joke, but the response was kind of funny. I'm like, maybe I'll just do that. So here we are. I, I think we're like a year and a half later or something. I don't know. This is the fourth message in James that I've been able to preach. And so be, because of that, I probably would have done this the first message, but we're actually going to, as Jeff says, be a little teachy here this morning. And, and I'm going to go probably do this morning what I should have done the very first time, but I just didn't know I was going to be doing this, and look at who the author is, give a little bit of perspective of, of who is this James that we're talking about and, and what's the purpose of James and why do we have this book. And then we're going to look at, at the last half, we'll look at a couple of verses in James and we'll be done this morning. So to begin with, I think you all have your hand out there if you go along and follow that. Uh, let, let's, let's start with this morning. Uh, in fact, let me say this first too. Again, the first half of this is going to be a little, as far as teachy, but I think if you stick with me to the end of this, I think if, if my prayer would be for each of us today here, maybe learn something we didn't maybe necessarily know, but more than that, if we can walk out of this morning, I think if, we're, if you stick with me here, I've been challenged this week many times over as I've been studying this, I think if we walk out with just one or two things that God is trying to communicate to us, uh, maybe some areas that we need to change to be more like Him, and that really is our goal. So let's begin here. Who is the author of James? All right, so you have on your sheet there, you can follow along that. There, there, there's really four possibilities, all right? So let's get, just jump right into this. Our first, our first uh, possibility, well, first, first of all, who is the author of James? James, okay, you would have all gotten that right. But there's actually four different James that are referenced in the New Testament. Your first one there, James is the father of Judas. This is Judas, not Iscariot. And I kept thinking, man, wouldn't you like to be that guy? You always had to have this disclaimer. What's your name? Judas, not Iscariot. I'm not associated with that guy. All right, so this, this first James is really one of the disciples, Judas. His father's name was James, mentions in Luke 6, 16. That's all we know about him. We know nothing else. There's really no reason to believe that he's the author of the book of James that we're going to be looking at. All right, so there's your first one. Number two, James, the son of Alphaeus. All right, James, the son of Alphaeus, was one of the 12 disciples. We don't know much about him. In fact, when I was growing up, uh, how many of you know the, disciple, the 12 disciples song? Anybody else learn that? <clears throat> there were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James's brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus. All right, I, dared, I told my kids I was going to sing that. I don't think they believed me. I'm just glad I'm done with that. I'm not saying the rest of it. We're done. That's all I knew about James. He was just one of the 12 disciples, and honestly, we don't really have anything else that we know about this James. Now, I'll give you this little bit piece of information. We do have a possibility, and this is speculation, that James and Matthew, I'm going to allude to Matthew a few times here. This wasn't planned either. But James and Matthew possibly were brothers, probably not. But if you look, uh, we won't look at this, but in Mark 2.14, Matthew was the son of Alphaeus. Now, the only reason that they'd be the same is if we're talking about the same Alphaeus. We don't know if that's the case. And really, we have no idea. Really, nothing else is mentioned about James, the son of Alphaeus, except that we have a song, and he's listed. And anywhere we list the 12 disciples, he's there. That's not the author of this book of James. Your third one there. 
James, the son of Zebedee. All right, this is the older brother to who? John, all right? So we have James and John, part of the inner three, right? We have Peter, James, and John, part of this inner three. So James, the son of Zebedee, they were called the sons of thunder, right? James and John. So James, this James was, and I'll give you a little bit of a, a timeline here. He was actually the first martyr. So if we read in Acts 12, 2, and I'll give you several references. We're not going to turn to all these for sake of time this morning. But in Acts 12, 2, James, the son of Zebedee, uh, was beheaded. Okay? He was the first martyr by the sword, lost his head. This is taking place again in Acts 12, so in about 44 AD. In 49 AD is the Jerusalem Council. Now, the best that we can understand as far as the timeline goes, the book of James is written sometime after 44 AD, okay? which is really, remember, if we go back to the very beginning part of James 1, it's written to who? The 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. These Christians are scattered because of some of the persecution that has taken place, really a result of even James, the son of Zebedee, being beheaded and some of this persecution that follows. So in 49 AD, the Jerusalem Council takes place, and there's really no mention of the Jerusalem Council in the book of James. So the book of James is most likely written between 44 and 49 A.D. Some speculate somewhere around 46, 47, somewhere on the timeline. So James, the son of Zebedee, if you're following me, could not have written the book of James if that is accurate because he wasn't alive. All right? So we come to our fourth option here, who is really the best option for the book, for the author for the book of James. And this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, why do we say the half-brother of Jesus? All right? So... Jesus' mother was Mary, born of a virgin. Were there other siblings that were born to Mary and Joseph? Yes. We're going to look at two passages where it states that. Uh, so these way we call them half-brothers because uh, they have the same mother. Obviously, Joseph's the father of the other brothers. So quickly, I think these references will be up on the screen. Galatians 1.19. Uh, this is actually Peter coming. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. Okay, so again, just a uh, reference, we're just giving the fact that Jesus had a brother, and in this case, we're, we're talking about James. One other passage in Mark 6, 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, or Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? Okay, so again, there's actually five boys in this family, Jesus being the oldest, uh, most likely James, again, we're talking about the author of the book of James, we're going to get to here in just a second, was the next oldest just because of traditionally the, the order of the listing. Uh, so Jesus, then James, and then you see several other brothers. So there's five boys in this family, and then we know that there's multiple sisters. So what do we know about these brothers? We don't have a lot of uh, kind of growing up years of Jesus and the brothers in interaction. Let me give you two references. Again, they'll be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. Uh, Mark 3, 31 to 35. So we give you these two references, and this kind of gives us an indication of, of how did... Again, we're trying to get an understanding. This is what I want to hear for the next few minutes. I want us to get an understanding of what was James thinking? Why did he write the book of James? Again, we're talking about the half-brother of Jesus, right? So he grew up with Jesus. What was it like? What was it like being the brother of Jesus growing up, right? And how did he view the whole Jesus 
starting his earthly ministry and the things that he communicated. Okay, let's get a little indication. We have two interactions between his brothers and Jesus. Mark 3, 31 to 35 is the first one. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. All right, so they're going to where Jesus was teaching a crowd of people, and his mother and his brothers come to call him. A crowd was seen around him, and they said to him, Your mothers and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? What a strange response. We went through a passage a little while ago that was similar to this. This is again in Mark. And looking about at those who sat around him, he being Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother or brother and sister and mother. Now again, Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother and brothers. He is communicating the value of spiritual, eternal relationships, even more important than physical relationships. Okay, but if we, if we look back at from James, again, I'm trying to view things from James' perspective, the author of this book. James and his brothers, how would you interpret that? You're like, what do you mean, who are your brothers and mother? What, what are, you, are you kidding me? As I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I wonder if there was ever a time where they struggled with some of these things that Jesus is now getting into his, he begins his earthly ministry at the age of 30, right? And he's communicating these things, and he's saying some strange things. Do you think they ever have a problem with that? I think we do get an indication that, yes. In fact, I think they might have been even humiliated and embarrassed sometimes of what their brother is saying and communicating. Look with me at John 7, 3. So his brothers, Jesus' brothers, said to him. Okay, so here are his brothers communicating to Jesus, and this is what he is saying. They're saying to Jesus, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if you just read that without reading that last verse, what are they communicating? I almost get the idea they're maybe being a little cynical or sarcastic with him and just saying, hey, if you are who you say you are, stop doing all the secret stuff and go and show yourself to the world. Kind of the attitude that they're portraying here. And then verse 5 gives us an indication that I think that's indeed, for not even his brothers believed in him. All right, so we don't have a ton of information about James, this author, up to this point, but we, we do have, get this indication that there might have been some friction, some tension between Jesus and his brothers, all right? They did not even believe that he was who he said he was. Now, let's go back a little bit. I, I had m- much time this week to contemplate what it would have been like to be the brother of Jesus. Now, at some points, I was, I was even thinking, should I be, in my mind, letting me, myself think about this, but Jesus was fully human, right? Now, we don't, we don't have all of the different stories and events that led up to Jesus until he starts his earthly ministry, because we spend most of our time in the life of Christ, that earthly ministry, and he miracles and his teaching. But think of what it would have been like, and again, I had a lot of time to think about this, and we won't spend much time here this morning, but think of what it would have been like to have been James and Joseph and Jude and being brothers of Jesus. He, he went through elementary. He was in middle school. And he was perfect and sinless. How many of you ever taught middle school kids? Okay. I taught middle school for quite a number of years. I never ran into a perfect middle school. What would it have been like? And I, and I, was, I, was, I went through all these different scenarios of, 
of times where Jesus never reacted sinfully to his brothers or to anybody else. He never lied. He never was deceitful. I was playing a whole, I was, I was going to go this whole story about baseball. I'm not going to, I decided not to do it, but I, actually I was talking to Matt. I was going to give a shout out to the left-handers because I think if Jesus, and this was where I was like, is this okay to be thinking about this way? But Jesus played as a kid. I mean, we, 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 he, he did normal kid things. So I don't know if they played baseball, but if, if Jesus played baseball, I think he would have been a first baseman. Right? Right, Matt? Why? I was a first baseman. Why? Because I was left-handed. And being left-handed is just a little bit closer to perfection. Amen? <laughs> and so Jesus being perfect, he was obviously left-handed. And there had to be moments of competition. And as they were playing as brothers, that there was this conflict and Jesus never sinned. In fact, Jesus never got in trouble from his parents and never got a spanking when all the other boys did. Okay, this is where my mind was going this week. What was it, what was it like to be the brother of Jesus? And I think even as they got older, there was some sort of resentment potentially there. And then all of a sudden, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and he starts making these claims and against and causing conflict against the religious group that they had, would have had admired and looked up to. Do you think that ever was a problem? It was. Again, here's mine. I'm trying to understand the author of James, and why did he write the book the way he did? Look at verse, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 7. I think that'll be on your screen. Um, let me give you one reference before that. We don't really have anything else to fill in the gaps about James, but we have two other references. And the last thing we said was even his brothers didn't believe in him. So what happened between then and the writing of the book of James? In Acts 1.14, we'll get to the reference on the screen here in just a second. In Acts 1.14, we have this upper room meeting that takes place after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who's present? The apostles are present. Mary, his mother, is there, and his brothers. James is here. Why, why is James at this meeting in the upper room? Because James had seen the resurrected Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. There's on the screen with me. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. This is his brother James, then to all the apostles. So at, at some point, James sees Christ for who he is, sees his brother for who he is. He's gone through this process of unbelief, and he sees a resurrected Christ, and then we see him even in the meeting at the upper room, and he has put his faith and trust in his brother Jesus, the Messiah. Now, if we continue to study the book of James, for sake of time, we won't look at these passages, but we will see James, and when I say James, we're obviously referring to the author, the half-brother of Jesus. If we were to continue looking at James through the rest of Acts, we would see that James is a great leader and a pillar in the church. I alluded to the Jerusalem Council a little bit ago. In Acts 15, we have this Jerusalem Council. What was the Jerusalem Council? All right, so in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council is where there have been some uh, discussions about whether you have to be circumcised for salvation. That was what the people were claiming, that you must be circumcised to be saved. And there are certain names, if we were to go through there, you have Paul and Barnabas and Silas, Peter and James. 
one of the leaders of this Jerusalem council. In fact, if we were to uh, continue looking through there, they were discussing, and James was very much involved in how, how do we promote this Gentile evangelism? And so they're going through these different aspects, and we see James is very much an integral part of the leadership of the church in Acts 15. And then getting to the, to the close here, we see James again for the last time in Acts 21, 17. Paul is coming to the elders of the church, and it's actually named, Paul comes to James and the rest of the elders, signifying that even in this case, James was one of the main leaders in the church, even among the other elders. Historically, we, we see that James, we don't really have much about his death. Uh, best we can tell is that he died somewhere around 62 A.D. Okay, so there's a little bit. We don't know a lot. There's the author of James. Gives us a little bit more glimpse of who the author is and, and about his life. I would add here, too, there, there's an interesting comparison. I'll just throw this out there for you who kind of like to study out this sort of thing. But it's interesting if you take some of the phrases and the words like greeting and beloved, that's not real common in the New Testament. Comparing some of the words and phrases in James is very similar to that in Acts 15 that we know James was a very integral part of the Jerusalem Council. So it's an, inner, it's an interesting uh, comparison between those words and phrases there. So that's something you could study out as well. We won't talk about that this morning. Now, sometimes the book of James gets criticized. Why? In fact, some say it shouldn't even be part of the New Testament. Why? Because it's all about works, right? Paul comes and says it's all about faith. You're not going to find anything in the book of James about the crucifixion or the resurrection. In fact, some say that James and Paul are in great conflict with each other. I like how MacArthur puts it. I'll have this on the screen here. Paul asks, how is salvation received. So Paul asks the question, how is salvation received? And what is his answer every time? By faith alone. By faith alone. James comes along and asks, how is salvation verified? And his answer is, it's verified by works. So if we can kind of put those two together, it is received by faith and it's verified by works. It's received by faith and verified by works. I don't, I don't think that we have to say that James and Paul are in conflict. I think they complement each other very well. In fact, anything that is real or genuine should be able to withstand scrutiny and testing. So whether we're talking about gold or precious stones, if it's authentic, it doesn't mind being authenticated and tested Improved. Now, right when I said that word, when I was going through this week, I, th I thought the word authentic. I thought of, and some of you know this, my sons and I, we sell shoes. All right? So it helps pay college bills and other things like that. And so we buy authentic shoes. In fact, my son uh, sold a shoe yesterday for $500. It's real. People actually pay that. If you were paying $500 for a shoe, a pair of shoes, would you want to make sure that it's the real thing? Well, of course, all right? So in our, we sell on different platforms, and we, we ship these shoes to a place where they authenticate it. Are, we're, are we concerned about shipping it to a place that authenticates it? No, because we know it's the real thing, all right? Now, you can buy fake thing. You could buy that same pair of shoes, a fake pair, for a lot cheaper, right? We're not mined by being authenticated because we know it's real. Way more important than a pair of shoes or diamonds 
is your eternal soul. So here James gives us the book of James where we said this is what authentic faith looks like. Should it be able to withstand testing? If it's genuine, then we shouldn't be concerned about it. I got way ahead of myself. All right, here's one. Let me give you a, a few references, uh, and don't, don't look these up. Uh, this really is a biblical concept. So let me, let me look at an Old Testament passage, Lamentations 340. Lamentations 340. I don't think these are on your sheet. You can just write the references down if you want. But let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. What's the idea here? Evaluate, validate, prove what you have. Is your walk with the Lord what it's supposed to be and what you say it is? Galatians 6, 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. I'm going to go through these quickly. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28, we used this a few weeks ago when we did the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This last one is a great one. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What's the point? All throughout Scripture, we see this whole idea of evaluating, proving, examining your life to see what you have is authentic, and that is the whole point of the book of James. Now, this past Monday, it was interesting timing, uh, so as I'm thinking about James and I'm thinking about kind of heading in this direction, uh, Matthew, in my Bible reading, Matthew 5 was where I found myself, some of you doing that New Testament reading, uh, we were reading, starting through the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 5. And so I'm reading through Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7, and it dawned on me that the Sermon on the Mount is another example of what true Christianity should look like. Look at a few verses here in Matthew 5 with me. We're going through the Beatitudes. I'll just read a few of these verses, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here he is teaching the Jewish people, the religious leaders, as he's teaching them the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We won't spend six months on those verses like Jeff did. What's the point of that? What, what, what is Jesus teaching, even as to religious leaders, is this is what real authentic faith looks like, and what you have is not authentic. It's counterfeit. Here's an attitude that should be portrayed, one that is humble, not arrogant, one that is lowly and meek, not self-righteous. We could move on to chapter 6. What do we have in chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount? Here we can see that genuine faith can be seen in our worship, how we pray, how we give, how we fast. This is what it looks like to forgive. And we could continue on and give several other passages through the Sermon on the Mount. But basically what we have is the Sermon on the Mount is a message about the genuineness of salvation and what's true about the Jewish group and the religious leaders. They failed the test miserably. Now, I asked myself this last week, why was James, as we're going to get here to the book of James, why was James so concerned about writing about genuine faith? He skipped the gospel completely and he skipped by faith alone, as Paul emphasizes, and he goes to 
this is what it should look like, and it's emphasized on verifying your faith by your works. Why does he do that? Well, one, I guess it would be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? But two, as I was thinking again, go back to what we were just talking about when he was growing up. Who would he have looked up to as the religious spiritual leaders of that day? The Pharisees. They had, they looked the part, they had an attitude towards loving God. They followed all the traditions that were set up. I mean, they obeyed the law to the T. They knew their Bible. And these were guys that were held up. And then their brother comes along and basically trashes all that. And they come to believe Jesus and all that James and his brothers had thought growing all along, that these were the men that we held up in high regard. These were the leaders. It wasn't real. Do you think it matters to James more than just an external appearance that we have? Do you think it mattered to James that what I thought most of my life was real turned out to not be real? Genuine faith matters. Verifying it by our works and our love for God matters, and it matters to James. And I think that's why he puts such a great emphasis on it. So what's the main purpose of the book? Is your faith Genuine. Okay, so in review, I think you have a little bit on your sheet there. Verses 1 through 3, we're going back to the first few messages of James. Just as a review, real quick, we see that genuine faith perseveres in trials. Remember that about a year and a half ago or so? Genuine faith perseveres in trials. Then the next section, we saw genuine faith seeks wisdom from God, not from this world. Genuine faith seeks wisdom from God, not from this world. And the last time... Uh, I was up here, verses 13 to 15, we looked at genuine faith fights against sinful temptations. So, with that long introduction, let's look at James 1, verses 19 and 20. James 1, 19 and 20. Two short little verses. Let's read these and then we'll continue our way through here. Know this, my beloved brothers... Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this is what we love about James, right? He's very simple to understand, very pointed, and a lot of times kind of pierces right to us, right? Excuse me. So let's briefly look at these verses (coughs) Sorry. That's why you drink out of a straw, huh, Jeff? I'm doing that next time. (coughs) That didn't work out real well. (laughs) Now, there's nothing deeper complicated about uh, these verses. You could read over this, and what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes, you could have just read it and walked out. We're going to try to dig into it a little bit. But then I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on it after that and see if there's something more for us here this morning than just what we read on the surface. So point number one, desirable characteristics that mark a true believer. Desirable characteristics that mark a true believer. Letter A there, a true believer will strive to be a good listener. Okay, we're just focusing on this. Be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. A true believer strives to be a good listener. Now, let me ask you this question. How many people do you know when you come to mind that says they are good listeners? Don't name anybody. Don't look at anybody. You're like, that person is a good listener. 
Like when I talk to them, they actually engage and actually, they seem to actually care what I'm talking about. My guess is it's harder to think of those people. Now, now I'm going to ask you another question. Think of a person that just seems to talk all the time and you can hardly get anything in edgewise. For me, that was easier to come up with a list for that, all right? Because we like talking, and a lot of times we like talking about who? Ourselves, okay? We're good at that. It, that comes naturally. I was thinking of the verse, bear one another's burdens. I think a lot of times we don't bear one another's burdens because we're not listening long enough to know each other's burdens because we're so busy talking and usually talking about ourselves. Take that as you will. Here James gives us this, be quick to hear. Be a good listener. Simple things. We know this. You could give this list yourself. Make eye contact with people when you talk to them. Please, especially when you have to read lips, right? Make I can, I, there are a couple people that when I was thinking through this list that seem to, when I talk with them, it actually seems like they care what I'm saying. A lot of times that, that, that's not a quality that many of us have. Actually engage, now this is what happens a lot of times is when someone's talking, you are already forming your rebuttal statement, Right? Or they're telling a story and you're going to one-up them, so I'm thinking about my story and when you're done talking, then I'm going to go ahead and interject. That, that happens all the time. Be a good listener. It's simple. And yet it's something we probably could work on. Letter B. A true believer will guard his speech. It's the, the phrase, slow to speak. Be slow to speak. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give an example. I told my wife that I was going to be led by the Spirit. I have my note written here, and I was going to decide whether I was going to share this story or not. So now that I'm already that far in, um, I'm going to give you an example of a horrible example of being slow to speak. It was very not slow to speak. So as you know, I've already alluded to, we have five kids, and... Uh, my wife is an amazing wife and mother, but with our first child, Bryant, who is uh, quite big now, um, Danielle um, was at the end of her pregnancy, and she was not small at the end of her pregnancy with Bryant. Lord help me. <laughs> and she made the mistake of asking me, do I look big in this dress? Am I right so far? Man, I was stupid. This was, this was like 20 years ago. All right, well, 21 years ago. And I said, I think I said this, I said this out loud. I said... If you put a blanket over a cow, it's still a cow. <laughs> now, I'll tell you right now. I told, I told her, I said, there's no way I can say that in front of church. She said, but people like it when you're real. And I was like, I will never be looked at the same again. <laughs> Let me just say, we are still happily married. <laughs> I think I've come a long way. And that was about the stupidest thing I've ever said. 
It would have been good for me to think of any one of these four verses in Proverbs before I would have opened my mouth and uttered something so ridiculous and have been slow to speak. We've all been there where we've uttered something stupid, right? We've said James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. Let me give you a few verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. In other words, the more you talk, the more you sin. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 13, 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens his wide he opens his lips, comes to ruin. My life could have been ended on that day. Um, Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. In Proverbs twenty nine twenty, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than for him. Again, what? The more you talk, the, the more transgression, the more sin. Talking too much leads to ruin. Again, this, these are simple concepts here. Be quick to hear. Be, be a good listener. Be slow to speak. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. Now again, there are times we, we communicate. God gave us the ability to communicate, an opportunity to communicate and share with each other. We need to do that. So how, how do I wrap this up here? And I thought I came to this verse of, if our speech could be this, Psalm 1914, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, well, the things that I think about come out my mouth, right? The things that I think about are going to come through in the words that I say. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, if those could be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, I think we would be doing pretty good. Don't always have to interject your opinion and thoughts every time you're given the opportunity. I think the worst place for this currently in our culture is social media. Anything and everything is just thrown out there with, with no regard for anybody else's feelings or thoughts. James here is reminding us, be slow to speak. When in a conversation, if your speech was always encouraging, edifying, building someone up, my guess is we would probably talk less. Maybe that would be our goal. We'd be wise to follow this instruction here. And then C, a true believer relies on the Holy Spirit to help control his or her anger. I think this is probably an area that we all, when challenged in and confronted with, is probably an area that we could work on. I alluded to this at the very beginning. Uh, the opportunity to have this foster baby in our home has led to certain frustrations because my plans can't always go the way that uh, I want. I didn't, I didn't plan on getting up at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning to feed him a bottle. My plans were, and, and certainly can lead to frustration. I don't know what it is for you. This shows up for me. This shows up in my driving. Don't you laugh. <laughs> Many of you are the same way. My kids know, and they, they, this, is a, this is an area of continual growth for me. But there's, there is something very annoying about when the light is green and been green for three or four seconds and the person in front of you doesn't go. Like, my life is passing me by. <laughs> and I feel like it is my responsibility to let them know. Now, I, I will literally, and my kids can let, I will just talk to these drivers. They can't hear me, but that doesn't stop me from telling, instructing them how to drive properly. 
but it can, it, like, it can cause frustration because I lost three seconds. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? I don't know what it is for you, but controlling this anger, I, I heard, a, I think it was a podcast on the radio, uh, but I didn't catch the whole thing, but I caught enough, and there was this lady that was, uh, I think it was on Focus on the Family, but there was this lady that was talking, and, and all I caught was she, in regards to her driving, and someone had cut her off, and her reply is, no problem, you can cut in front of me because I'm a Christian. Uh, that, that phrase has just stuck with me thinking, I think I respond a lot of times not like a Christian should. I'll continue to work in that area. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Why? Because all your barriers are broken down and you are just easily attacked. We say easily triggered, right? Easily exposed. Proverbs 19, 11. This is a great one. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is, his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Are you able to be bothered by someone else? And there's so many different examples we could give. But are you able to somehow be offended or someone to do something towards you or something happened to you and you let it go? Can you do that? Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And James here reminds us to control our anger. Now, is there such thing as righteous anger? I'll give you two things on your sheet there, two terms. Sinful anger, just to, just to kind of qualify these two different things. We have sinful anger and unsinful anger. If that's a word, that's what I chose. Sinful anger and unsinful. What's the difference? Sinful anger is an assault on our own will. It's an assault or attack on my own will. Unsinful anger is an assault on God's will. Now, what is most of our anger and frustration? It's an attack on my will, my plan, my agenda, my schedule for the day. And we see we lose control. Now, there was nothing real deep or earth-shattering, and maybe there's something in there that, we, that can challenge us in the way that we live out our life. It was to me. But with that being said, I think there's a better and a deeper meaning here for these verses, and I think what James is getting at. So as I was thinking about this this week, can a non-believer learn to be a good listener? I, I think so. Can, can a non-believer put different things in his place to help guard his tongue as much as we can? Probably not we're going to have the Holy Spirit that helps us, but to some degree. Can an, a non-believer put steps in his life to help control his anger and go to uh, anger management classes? Yeah. So, so, is there something more that James is getting at here in these passages? Because if this is a result of genuine faith, what is it that really differentiates a Christian believer and a non-believer? Is it just those things or is there more to it? In James, we've been talking about the test of genuine faith. We talked about genuine faith is evidenced in how we respond to trials. Are you with me? Genuine faith is evidenced by how we respond to temptations. We talked about that last time. 
And I think what James is getting here, even in these verses, is that we see that genuine faith is evidenced in how we respond to the Word of God. Okay, so why do I think it's how we respond to the Word of God? Look at verse 22. If you're in James, I think this will be on the screen. Verse, James 1, verse 22. Look at this context with me to see what verses 19 and 20 are talking about. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget, forgets what he was like. What's the emphasis on here? Hearing and doing the, the word, the word of God. So point number two, genuine faith properly responds to the Word of God. Well, again, I'm going to allude to passage in Matthew 13. I didn't know how many... I thought we were getting away from Matthew this week, but Matthew 13 talks about the parable of the sower, right? We have the four different types of ground. Some fall by the wayside, some fall on stony ground, some fell among the thorns and then was choked out, and then some fell on good ground. So verses 8 and 9, if we were looking, you don't have to turn there, but I think they'll be on the screen again as well. Matthew 13, verses 8 and 9. Again, we're talking about responding properly to the Word of God. Verses 8 and 9 says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Okay, so good seed fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then it makes this transition of, He who has ears, let him hear. Well, what? I thought we were talking about seed falling on good ground. And having a harvest and a fruit. And then it says, he who has ears, let him hear. And I think we get a little bit un- better understanding when we jump down to verse 23. As for what was sown, again, we're in Matthew 13, verse 23. As for what was sown on good, so- good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case. And again, it repeats this, a hundredfold and another 60, and another 30. So what's the lesson here in Matthew 13, the soil? Those who have ears to hear, the ability to hear and understand what? The Word of God. Does everybody have the ability to hear and understand the Word of God? No, because it fell on good soil. What differentiates then a believer who has genuine faith, that's what we're talking about, and a non-believer? Someone who can hear and understand the Word of God. Be quick to hear then means what here in James 1 verses 19? A true believer hears God's Word and responds yielding fruit in his life. MacArthur puts it this way. I think it's on your sheet there in front of you as well. Because your faith is real and you have made a connection with the living God, and in that connection... There's a flow of love and life and power, that's different than a non-believer, that makes you responsive and receptive to the Word of God. So being quick to hear, quick to hear what? Quick to hear, receive God's Word. Now, if we were to look at verse 19, still in James 1 here, verse 19, it starts by saying, know this. In fact, it would be a little bit better understood if we put the word you in front of that, you know this. You know what? All right, let's go back to verse 18. You following with me? 
Am I getting too confusing here? Verse 18, James 1, verse 18. Let's look at the verse that precedes verse 19. What does it say? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the... Here again, we're talking about the word of truth. So here we have two verses, verse 18 and 22. are both talking about the word of God surrounding these verses 19 and 20 that we're looking at today. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is he saying? What is James saying to his readers as he starts in verse 19? You know this. You know what? You know the power of the word. You know that you have been made a new creature. You know that your life should bear fruit. You know this. Therefore what? Be quick to hear God's word and receive it and let it change your life. That's what James is communicating to us this morning. Now, is this just a one-time hear God's word and then move on and we're good to go? Well, this is a continual process. That's why here this morning, many of you have genuine faith and there's still going to be areas that we're challenged in that we need to do better and grow. Why? Because it's a continual process. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, because this is continual sanctification process. So everybody, even things here this morning as we're talking about this, that you're saying, you know what? I know my faith is genuine, but these are areas that I need to improve in and grow in. Why? Because we receive God's word and we allow it to change us. So let's go back to the phrase, be quick to hear, hear what? Hear God's word. Do you enjoy hearing God's word taught? Do you look forward, morning, middle of the day, evening, to spending time with God in His Word? Do you take opportunities to sit under Bible teaching? I think it's safe to say that if you show me someone who has little desire to ever be in church, little desire to sit under preaching, has no desire to spend personal time with them, when opportunities to sit under Bible teaching, no thanks, I'm not interested. I think I can show you a person whose faith is not genuine. In fact, we have a lot of opportunities here at Graceview. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Jeff alluded to Wednesday, Wednesday night. Some of you have opportunities. Come out Wednesday night to hear God's Word taught. Deanna has opportunities to sit under preaching and teaching constantly. Men, we have opportunities to be part of these men. Take opportunities. Do you have a desire to hear and learn God's Word. Why? Because God's Word is the fuel for our soul. We talked about it when we talked about we, we need God's Word to face the trials. We need God's Word to fight off those temptations. Or is God's Word just a checklist in your day? Is it a duty that you do? Is it almost a drudgery like, oh, I've got to go to church again? Or do you have a love for God's Word? James is pleading with us, be quick to hear because this is an evidence of genuine faith. Now, to be fair, I think I must admit that there have been seasons in my life where my desire for God's Word is greater than other times. Right? I think that happens to, to all of us, where I'm struggling. Why does that happen? The lures of this world, our selfish desire, our flesh gets in the way, and we are, are enticed by what the world has to offer. That affects us all. But is the pattern of my life is my pattern, do I have a desire to learn God's Word? Be quick to hear. 
But then that next part, what does this mean in the context of what we're talking about? Be very slow and careful when speaking for God. This is very important. Be quick to hear, but be slow to speak. We're in the context of God's Word. Be slow to speak for God. Now, there are many of you in here that have preached before, maybe have opportunities to preach now, teach a Sunday school class, life group, uh, teaching the children. Okay. When we are sharing God's Word, we better be very careful and cautious when speaking for God. And that is why I would say I greatly appreciate, and you as well, the amount of effort that Jeff puts in every Sunday because it is a weight to stand up here and proclaim God's word because it matters. Hebrews, amen. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 17 says what? Obey your leaders. Now, this is to all of us saying, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. It matters when we share. Now, should we be sharing God's word? Absolutely. Okay, but some of us have opportunities to preach and teach, and James is saying here, be, be slow to speak. You better be cautious and careful. Take every opportunity to hear God's Word, but be slow and cautious when teaching God's Word. And then this last little part, again, in the context of hearing God's Word, it says then be slow to anger. Now, the word anger here does not mean, I'm not a Greek scholar, it is, thumos is this anger of just like blow up, angry, yelling, scream, okay, it's like big boisterous. That, that's not the anger here. This anger is uh, under the surface, maybe a resentment that grows and builds. Why? Be, because you've heard God's word and now there's a resentment there that's growing because I don't want to have to obey God's word. And James is saying, don't let that happen. Don't let your anger and resentment grow up and build a wall against God's word. And this usually happens when our flesh and sin habits are challenged. Why? Because we want to justify our sin. When we're confronted with God's word, and then we're like, I don't, I don't want to submit. I want to continue in my sin and, and anger or resentment. And sometimes under the surface, builds and grows. And what does it What's the result? It does not produce the righteousness of God. You can't produce what is right before God with resentment and anger towards God's word. You can't please God when you have resentment towards what his word says. So what does this mean? And I conclude with a few questions. Do you have a hunger? Evaluate your own life. He says, I'm reading these questions. Do you have a hunger for God's word? Do you receive and submit to God's word when you are confronted about an area in your life? Is there some area in your life that you've developed maybe some sort of resentment and anger, some sin that you're hanging on to? What should be my response when confronted with God's word? I hear it, I submit, I obey, and if sin is confronted, I turn. I hope that will be our heart's attitude and again, we can certainly look at it from being quick to hear, be a good listener, slow to speak, but in the context of hearing God's word, may we always take opportunity to hear and receive God's word. Let's pray. We finished here this morning. Everyone just close their eyes. Before I pray, I just want to ask us a few questions as we evaluate 
this morning, what has been shared. I appreciate your attention and listening to this this morning. I hope that God uses this in some way in our lives. So let me just ask you a few questions. How are you in your conversations? Are you a good listener? Do you, do you listen when people are sharing their burdens and requests, and do you actually follow through and pray with them, or are we too busy about what we have to say? You always have to be the one that's right in sharing your opinion. Maybe it's time that we reevaluate the words and how much we say. What about your anger and self-control? Do you easily fly off the handle? But much more importantly, how is your desire to hear and know God's word? When confronted with the truth of God's word, do you accept it? Do you obey? Do you submit? So Christians, let's continue to grow in these areas, to grow in our love for God and our, and our love for his word. You may be here today and be like, mainly this was a message for Christians, and I, I'm not sure that whole genuine faith thing that you're talking about, I don't, I don't even know if I have any of that. None of this stuff makes sense to me. Maybe you're saying here today, I don't... I don't think I have that genuine faith. I'd love to talk with you more about that, meet one of our pastors and share what it means to know Christ, to be able to develop that love for Christ and his word. Let's pray this morning. God, we do thank you for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces. So God, may we have a heart that receives it that we submit and turn and obey. So God, whatever it is this morning, even for me throughout this week, that you've challenged me with, challenged us with, that we would hear God's word and we would grow in that. If there's anybody here this morning that say my faith is not genuine, I don't even understand what we're talking about, that they would come to know you and put their faith and trust in you this morning. Pray that you give us a wonderful remainder of our day. Help us as we even go through our different places of work this week that we would, that we would guard our words, but that we would take the words of the gospel and that we would proclaim those to the lost and dying world. Give us a great week this week. In Jesus' name, amen.